As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is God's word. All right, if, uh, if you'd like, you are welcome to take kids back to our kids' room. Milena is right back here. For the summer, we just have one room uh, going on for kind of a kids' lesson during the sermon. You're welcome to use it, or you're welcome to have your kids uh, hang out with you in here. Either way is fine. But now would be the time if you'd like to take them back. And I'm just going to briefly say that for, for the summer, we're doing a study of the book of First Peter, and we're asking the question, what, uh, what would it look like for the church to be the compelling community that the Bible casts it as? Um, for the church to be kind of a light um, to the rest of the city, if you will. And so that's, the, uh, that's what we're exploring as we think about this text. But first of all, as we enter into that, we want to take some time in prayer. And Fiona uh, is going to lead us in a prayer uh, shaped around the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we praise you. You are in whom we live and move and find our being. You've created the galaxies and all of the earth sing your praises. May we see your glory in our everyday lives with the monsoons that are to come and the laugh of, or cry of children back in our nursery. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, grant your kingdom space around us May you bring blessings to our homes, to our neighbors, and to our communities. May you bless those who are sick with healing. Restore our communities and our cities in the world that is broken. Um, uh, bring your healing to the wounded and brokenhearted. Give us our day, this daily bread. Lord, strengthen the work of the hands of your people. Give us the physical bread for our strength, but also the spiritual bread for our hope. Please grant us rest in all ways, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. May you give us all the things that we need in excess, excess and abundance so that we can continue to give freely to others who may need it as well. With prices rising and stresses mounting, may we commit all that we have to you and you bless us with all that we need. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. Our hearts constantly turn against you and your people. Give us grace so we can give grace to others. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please protect us from the evils in this world from evil thoughts and from evil circumstances, and even people moved by evil. Protect us from the evil that even exists within our own hearts. Protect us from the accuser who desires to separate us from the peace of, of your mercy that covers us. Please protect our church, our families, and our community. 
And please give us the confidence that no matter the situation that we encounter, that you care for us and you are present here with us. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Fiona, thank you. Um, I've really appreciated hearing uh, your prayers, as many of you have been sharing those. Um, and that's something we're going to continue to do is just to, to you know, make that kind of part of our community is that we share these prayers with one another. So when John Simon, who isn't here today, asks you to do that, uh, you should say yes. Because it's, we're not looking for perfect prayers, but just uh, to hear from you and the ways that you would pray. So as we, uh, as we enter into this time, I want to remind us a little bit of what we talked about last week. And I know I mentioned those three different uh, services we had. So I know that in some of us being in, down in Mexico and hearing uh, a sermon that was very much translated and, and slower and different, I know I heard some people say like, wow, that was cool. But I also, I, I found myself trying to figure out what the different words meant and having a hard time following along. Uh, we're not used to that in, in our church. Um, and then also the fact that John was preaching here, I was preaching there. I want to just kind of anchor us back a little bit in what last week was about. And last week was about the idea of love, that love should be very evident within the people of God. And so this next section is growing out of that. It's a continuation of the same idea. And these words are very complex and metaphorical in a sense. Uh, the Apostle Peter is drawing back into the Old Testament, these Bible concepts about the role of God's people in the world today. And the core of this, of this section is probably this, it, where he says, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there's, there's a lot in there. Um, for some of you, those may be very familiar ideas, and for some of you, those may be very unfamiliar ideas. And so these three illusions, house, priest, and sacrifice, become really key uh, to this text. Our Christian identity here is described as being like a house, which is to say like God's temple, specifically, and like priests. And then our worship, um, as people who come to God and express his worth, um, and our work become the sacrifice in this text. I'm gonna work this out, but I want you to consider these two ideas that are in here and just think about this, the identity that God's people are to have. Maybe you identify with that. Maybe you're just considering that. And then the ministry or the work or the service that God's people are to do. So I'm gonna read this again. I'm gonna read these parts a number of times just to soak us in them. So it says this, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I lay I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Um, last week, just to add a little bit more, we looked at this idea, it was in the text, about milk, pure spiritual milk. And uh, it was really great at the Spanish service. I, I don't know why, but every time he translated me and said leche, 
I was like, I have, I, I forgot, I've heard that word throughout all my life as a Tucsonan, um, but I never connected it to this biblical idea. I was like, why, this, this, why is this throwing me off a little bit? But, but yeah, milk, um, pure milk. And we talked about the craving that you are to have for milk and commentators say that this is referring to the way that an infant craves milk um, the moment that it is born, except in other scriptures like in Hebrews, milk is metaphorical for the basic teachings and you're supposed to grow up past it. But here it's clear that Peter is saying, in this case, he's talking about something you should crave your entire life. And he's talking about the principles of the gospel the ideas of the gospel, he's saying you should crave these things your entire life, okay? Not, not beliefs you would move beyond, but beliefs you would crave and hope for and hope in continuously all throughout the duration of your life. And these were the basic elements of what he's calling the good news of Jesus. Now, Jesus brought good news on many levels, and when you understand the whole story of the Bible, it enriches the good news. I'm, I'm very um, careful to want to say that we want to be committed to the good news of Jesus, but also to say that we, we don't want to reduce that down to just merely being a belief about how we aren't, you know, condemned for sins. And I think a lot of times when people have heard the message of Jesus, um, or a lot of us who have grown up in the message of Jesus, we can oversimplify it and not realize how big of an idea this is. I mean, at, the Bible's story starts with creation, and people were created to worship and live in a deeply significant and intimate relationship with God and one another. And through and because of our ancestors' fall into rebellion, and, and the one that we continue just effortlessly to this day, we are lacking in all of these areas. All of these things suffer and are broken. And the good news of Jesus isn't just, you know, getting at giving you kind of a, a sense that, ah, I don't have to be in trouble anymore or I get out of things that I've done. It's actually getting at the repair of everything within creation that has been broken. The good news that Jesus entered in and obeyed as we could not and bore the curse that we deserve has far-reaching uh, implications in our lives. And in Jesus, we receive this status that we couldn't earn, a new life, a fresh hope, and sustaining grace, and that enables us to re-enter the presence of God and move into a healthier, loving relationship with God, with other people around us, and with the very work of our hands. Literally, every single piece of our lives, it is meant to touch and to repair. And since this is such good news, it would be such good news that that is true. We should crave to hear about it and apply it to ourselves more and more and more. And since it's a gift that's come to us through sacrificial love, we should be contemplating this grace and this sacrificial love constantly and asking, what does this mean for me today? And again, tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So that's the pure spiritual milk that Peter has described before. And now he switches metaphors to the cornerstone of a temple, a cornerstone of a building, but he's specifically talking about here a temple concept that they would have understood. And he says, as you come to him, as you come to him, and that, that phrase, as you come to him, is actually 
very similar to when he was talking about craving milk. It's this return, this regular pattern of return. It isn't just coming to Jesus once, it's coming back to him, craving him, moving toward him over and over again. As you come to him, the cornerstone. So we come to Jesus regularly as the ancient Hebrew people returned to the presence of God in their temple regularly. And this image of a cornerstone becomes important in that light. So think about it, about it this way. The, the picture that Peter is painting is the people of God would return to God, return to the teachings over and over again. They would return to their temple over and over again. They saw it as critical and he is saying Jesus is the cornerstone of that teaching and that temple. Now many of us have seen old churches or government buildings. Um, our, our quirky old building here doesn't have like a really distinct cornerstone, some do, right? And when you've seen that, there's usually this larger or more ornate stone in the corner of the building. Uh, a lot of times it'll have an inscription on it, it'll tell you when the building was built or something of that nature. And that's the cornerstone, that's when they make it obvious. Every building has one, ours does too, we just don't know which one it is, right? But the cornerstone is, or corner brick, as it would be in our case, um, is, the, is the brick or stone that's laid from which all others take their direction. It's the first one, it needs to be laid perfectly, and everything else is built in relationship to that stone. That is the beginning point. And to identify with God's people is similar to that in that our lives are always to be centered on Jesus. Now, you, you might say, well, what about the people that came before us? You know, they couldn't do that. Well, in the Old Testament, people are looking forward to something that was promised to them, which we now know is Jesus. And today we look back. But all throughout the scriptures, the cornerstone idea is the promise of Jesus that was to come and now the person of Jesus that we look back to. And we are to pattern ourselves after Jesus, depend on Jesus, identify with the person and work of Jesus, and identify with the rejection and suffering of Jesus. That is what the church ought to do. Just like a building never moves on from its cornerstone, so the church or God's people should never move on from Jesus. As a building is created in reference to the cornerstone, so God's people should operate always, continually in reference to Jesus. You don't enter in in reference to Jesus and move on to something else. Our continual life should be in reference to Jesus. So, the world, the watching world, our neighbors, our friends, um, should see some things. These things should be very evident to them. Um, they should see people who are oriented and focused and returning to Jesus, serving as Jesus served, suffering as Jesus suffered, and orienting ourselves in dependence upon God as Jesus did. And when the church becomes oriented around anything else, which usually what, what happens, because um, it's so, so easy, is it becomes oriented around ourselves. Um, we become domineering, we avoid the sufferings of Jesus, and we get completely off design and things start to not make sense anymore. Now really quick, um, I know many of us, I mean we're a small community, I know a lot of our stories, and many of us have had negative church experiences, right? Or we know people who have. And some of these folks um, have, maybe they've rejected the way of Jesus honestly. Um, 
some, some folks come, come in and they go, you know, I don't like it. I'm not into it. And that's, that's, a, that's an option. But all too often, uh, many people that we know have had experiences because people who identified with Jesus were not living in reference to the way of Jesus. Um, many people who would say, I'm a receiver of grace, um, did not extend grace to them, right? Many people who would say, I am a, a student of the Holy One, um, have lived in ways that were not holy. And that's complicated because all of us know um, that that is an impossible thing to live up to entirely. But I, I'm not so sure that people are bothered by that. I think they're bothered by the hypocrisy of saying that is what's happening when it isn't. Um, when someone says, look, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I think I've failed you, I don't, people don't tend to be too bothered by that. People, though, get really hurt when someone says, I am following Jesus, and then they act in a way that seems quite antithetical to the way of Jesus. Now, to be clear, um, I'm not saying that to be following in the way of Jesus is always easy or affirming to everyone. Uh, it, it really is not. I mean, you can look at Jesus in the Bible, and he, um, he, he's quite a, an interesting character to look at. There are many people who walk away from him quite disappointed or offended, um, but they're often not the ones that you would expect. Um, the people who, who tend to like, find his embrace are the ones that everybody around him expected not to, and the people who walk away offended are often the ones that everybody expected to really be into him um, and to be on the same page. And I think the same is quite true today. Um, as with like the ancient Pharisees, and, and even if you aren't a Bible reader, you're probably, you've heard that, right? And it doesn't come with good uh, connotations. But to the, to the ancient Pharisee, who was really the, the most religious, um, really quite devout um, type of person of the day, Jesus was very challenging and difficult to understand and often convicting because Jesus required a whole new orientation of the heart, leaving anything behind that somebody loves or swears allegiance to more than him. And often the Pharisees, the very religious people, would find that they were being asked to drop some of their very religious ideals and they didn't see how that could be compatible. They, they struggled. Um, oftentimes, some of the things that are very attached to religion actually cannot, uh, cannot exist in line with the cornerstone of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Often people run to religion to feel very righteous. Um, to feel very good about themselves, to feel like they're strong. Um, believe me, like the role I have is fraught with peril here. Because um, the day any of you come up and say, like, great sermon, it's very easy for me to go, like, yes, you know, I've finally, like, uh, finally, they see it, you know, they see everything I've done. And, like, uh oh, here comes this feeling, um, this, this, this me centered. Thing. And please don't stop saying that, please. I, you know, it's a struggle for me, but you can still throw it out there. Um, but, the, but the ideas of spiritual achievement, you know, to, to look at oneself and go, I think I'm doing quite well, is a very, it's very attached to the religious pursuit. Um, and these are not things that Jesus is inviting us to. 
He is not inviting us to a a religious achievement game. He is not inviting us into some kind of rubric where we can look at ourselves and find ourselves to be better than other people around us and look down at them and go, ah, look at you, you idiot. And I, and I, I think this is very tempting in religion and in pseudo-religion, which I would say is what almost all of our friends and neighbors are engaged in constantly. There are always these rubrics and these metrics by which we can be on the right team and be more righteous than other. I mean, I was... You know, everyone's just just go. I don't know. Look up some, any news story. Scan the comments. There it is. But it's the same. It's the religious idea of I, you people, me. Look how much better I am, right? So the identity of God's people is an invitation to continually return to Jesus and to center on Him, and His way. So the now the imagery of the temple becomes important here too. Because that's, so that's not just me saying to, to people who are interested in religion, who are already a part of it, hey, get back to Jesus. It's not, it's not just that. Because Peter here calls us, he says, we're, we're to come to the cornerstone, and we're being built into a house, built into a temple. And the temple was where God met people. Now, Jesus is where, in, in many ways, God met people in person. And to be joined to Jesus as stones are joined together in a temple means that God's people now are to be the one through whom, the ones, the community through whom God encounters people. Now, that's a high calling and, a, and can be kind of a terrifying one. And so we, uh, the, the, as God's people, are invited really to be the place and to be the people and to be the presence where people would encounter God. That should be challenging for each one of us, but truthfully, this is mostly talking about us as a whole, as a body, as a community. And we're gonna talk about this over the next several weeks, but the whole metaphor ties together as being observed by unbelievers. Um, this, this actually comes up, um, comes up in following weeks, and I'll get to that, but it's like a temple is made up of stones. God, God's people are brought together and made into a body that are dependent and anchored on Jesus, and then they become a visible and a real presence of God in our neighborhood, our city, our nation, and our world. And it's easy to be dismayed, I think, when I think about that, and I go, oh no, we fail at this, but remember what I was saying. People don't tend to be bothered by failure when it's coupled with humility, right? By a need for people who would say, I need more of Jesus and I am sorry. Would you help me? I think that actually is part of the presence we take for. We show the presence of Jesus when we are humble and when we admit our faults and we don't attest to our own righteousness but to the grace of God. Now our scripture said Jesus Christ, the cornerstone though, is also an offense. Um, it's also called a stumbling block. And um, these ideas of temple and priesthood, like I said, they're Old Testament concepts. And so this is in reference to some scriptures. I'm going to give you Isaiah 28, 16. Um, says that this is some 700 years before Jesus. But behold, um, the prophet Isaiah is speaking uh, as, as if God is speaking here. Behold, I am, the, I am the one who's laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. 
And then Psalm 118.22 um, says this, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And Peter is drawing back on these Old Testament scriptures and bringing them to us. Now, Peter's audience would have been mixed um, like we probably are. Some of them would have been familiar with Judaism and these references, and others would have been newer to worshiping Israel's God and therefore just becoming familiar with the Old Testament, probably like some of us. But the idea here is, is pretty simple. God is laying down a foundation of faith for people to base their lives upon. Um, it is Jesus. And Jesus, when he comes into the earth and he claims to be one with the Father, he also, very specifically, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, quotes this psalm and says that he is the cornerstone. And that's a big deal. Um, he's claiming he was the, the one foretold by Isaiah and the one spoken of in the Psalms. And both Peter, um, who we're reading right now, and the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, apply this title to Jesus. So Jesus becomes the foundational piece, the central piece of the faith of, Israel, of, of Israel's God, of the people of Israel. And some will either stumble on that piece of information, on him as a person, um, or reject it. To stumble, I think, would be to fail to understand and see how it fits in. To reject it is just as it sounds to say, I'm not into that. Um, but for those who receive him, he will be a sure foundation and a precious foundation. To, to be secure um, in your faith is to have a sure foundation. To have a changed heart toward God is to have a precious cornerstone. Now, why, why, do, you, why do you see, you know, why do you think some of us stumble and reject Jesus? Why, why I mean, this room would be jam-packed, right? Every single church in Tucson would be full if this wasn't, to some degree, a stumbling block or an offense. It can be due to a lack of understanding that people don't put the pieces together, but most often, it offends those of us who are the most wise and religious. Because it's a message of freely given grace as opposed to being the way to be right and seen as righteous. And that is a very difficult thing to receive because it just flattens all of our achievements. This is why Christianity, honestly, tends to spread most easily among the poor and oppressed. Um, uh, think about it, among the poor and oppressed where there isn't a sense of like, I am doing so well right now to receive a message of grace, you're prepared, your heart is prepared to receive Jesus. In a community like ours that is very affluent, and very sure of itself, and very independent, it can be a very difficult message to hear because it requires that you surrender all of those things. The church is growing in Africa, and Asia, and the Middle East, South America. People embrace grace, embrace the Bible. They're saying in many, in many ways, I want to know what God has to say to me. And Peter has written elsewhere about the stone that the builders rejected, and it's an interesting moment. Um, through him, God had just healed a downtrodden and, and, um, and a man who, who needed healing. He, he's healed someone who is weak, who has nothing. 
And the religious people were trying to silence Peter afterwards. They were trying to stop his ministry. They didn't want any more of these healings to come. And Peter in Acts 4 looked right at these religious leaders and he said to them, um, Jesus is the stone that you, the builders, rejected. He doesn't say it in the abstract anymore. He aims it right at them. He said, you, religious leaders, you rejected him. This man has received what Jesus has offered. You have rejected him. I think especially in our, in our day, in our space, we should expect people who want to be known for being wise in their own estimation, who want to be viewed as morally and religiously superior to struggle with and often reject Jesus as their cornerstone. And, and honestly, in our culture, these are the people we, we cannot seem to stop trying to please. People in the academy, in the church, and in the government, we always are looking at those who have the power, the wisdom. We, we just can't. We can't seem to stop, which makes it difficult to identify with Jesus. To identify with God's people, to identify with Jesus is to be founded and secured in him and him alone as the cornerstone of our faith, even when people reject him. And then, like the temple and like the priests, we will become a living representation of the presence of God here on the earth when we're founded on nothing else. So I want to just put out a few things before we end on what that could look like. What is, a, what is a Christian ministry then, if it's characterized by these things? What would that look like? Peter wrote, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices. Um. I have kind of three words here. I wanna, I wanna try to suggest that we might want to own work, word, and government. You didn't see those coming, did you? Especially not the third one. Um, work, word, and government. Um, these are things the priests did. These are things a priesthood did, okay? Um, they did them in the sight of the community. Um, if we are a visible presence, if we're like a temple, and if we're like worshipers, like a priesthood of God that are a visible presence that actually create an encounter of God with people, that we are part of that, then we are similar to the priesthood and we would engage in work, word, and government. The first two correspond to our great commissions. This is something I've, I've been saying and I, I, wanna, I want to impress this. Um, we have more than one great commission as people. Um, when we are created in the book of Genesis, um, the call for people, and they are, to, they are to go out, they are to build, they are to worship, they are to live in harmony with one another. They are to, there's to be family, they're to build culture, they're to take dominion in the best sense of the word, and they are to go out as responsible, working, passionate human beings into their world and create culture. And we are all called to this. That's our first commission. It's all humans are called to do that. That is why you work most of the time and you wish it meant more to you is because you were indeed called to do it and commissioned to do it by God. 
And then, so that's our work, then word, um, when Jesus um, comes and he's walked with us, he's spoken, he's declared the kingdom of God, and he tells his people, um, his disciples, go into the world and make disciples. Um, Here's where I'm adding word, and I'm not saying that takes away our work. I think we are still supposed to be creating good culture, to be building beautiful and meaningful things, doing things that are important. And now we are to be leading other people, discipling people into the kingdom as we go, as we do these things. Um, that This is why I think it's kind of problematic to, to assume you're either, like you either work or you're in ministry. That is a silly distinction the Bible does not make. Um, we should be carrying this word, this good news of the gospel into everything that we do and disciple making should be happening all around all of us. We are all called the priests of God, every single one of us. And then government comes in, and here's why I say that, I don't mean the national government. I mean that in order to do these callings well, we must look out for one another and hold one another to our orientation to the cornerstone of Jesus. And so therefore we should govern one another in such a way that when people look at us, they see people who are humble and who are returning to Jesus. So often in our situation, in our world, like our faith is such a solo project that we don't speak into the lives of others. Though almost all of us, when I talk uh, to, to all of us in this community, we always want someone to be speaking in for us, but we are not speaking in for anybody else. There's this tension of like, I want it. I don't know if I should give it. What do I do? We as a church are called to walk with each other, to co-disciple one another, in sense to govern one another, not in a controlling way, but in such a way that we bring one another back to Christ the cornerstone, to the way of the gospel so that our public witness is rich. That's on us to do. Who else would it be tasked to but us, right? I wanna work those out just a little bit more. Work, we offer spiritual sacrifices. The priest's work demonstrated the presence and grace of God to the community and applied it to them. Think about that. The priests in the scripture, they demonstrated the presence of God and the grace of God. Every sacrifice on an altar was a demonstration that someone's sin was being placed on an innocent substitute instead of them. This is enacted grace in front of them. And then it was applied to people. It was moved from the, the, the space of the altar onto their very souls that you have received this mercy. That's what the priests did, their work demonstrated the presence and the grace of God. And now that Jesus has died for sins and we don't need to sacrifice any innocent creatures anymore, now the work that we do in the world is we are called to do it in such a way that it demonstrates and imparts grace onto everyone who experiences it, every bit of our lives. It doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. The priesthood goes from being the Levites to being every believer. The work that we do, we are called to demonstrate and impart grace in the ways that we do it. Our work routines, the ways that we engineer, our, our work in the social sphere, we are priests everywhere we go all the time. Okay? And then word. 
We offer sacrifices of praise, a scripture um, that works this out and actually connects work, word, and sacrifice is Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. It says this, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What is it? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then he says, do not neglect to do good. There's your work. And share what you have. There's sacrifice. For such sacrifices, as he calls them, are pleasing to God. It's acknowledge his name. You don't need to be a great preacher. You don't need to, need to be an excellent communicator. All you need to be able to do is to say, you know what? I'm trying to orient my life around the one who gave me grace. And, or, or, or something like that. That's all you, just acknowledge who you're trying to live for, right? You don't acknowledge you and how well you're doing. You acknowledge a gracious Christ who's laid his life down, that you're just trying to orient your life around. That's what I'm trying to do. And then you do good. That's just in every, that's the call for your, our entire life. Do, do what is good to the best of our ability and share it. And here we're told that these are sacrifices that are pleasing to God, okay? When something, and, and so I should just say, this doesn't mean that you don't speak of the gospel. I'm not trying to diminish that. I think you will if you're doing this. Because when something is worth very much to you, when you're anchored and centered on Christ, you want to share it and you consider it to be good news, which is, which is simply what the word gospel means. So Christians should share Jesus with others, but it should be in the context of them just being honest about who they are and what they worship and doing works that exhibit the principles of grace and sharing them with others, which is what you do every day. That's the calling for us every single day. And all this should be done in a spirit, a spirit of servanthood. The idea of sacrifice infers a, a sacrifice to God, right? But then Jesus has called us to wash one another's feet. And we know that that doesn't mean just hold like specific foot washing ceremonies. It was a sign in their day of taking the approach of a servant. He's saying our posture toward people should be like a servant. And and my question here is, you know, what should a Christian ministry look like? And I think it's pretty simple. E even the word ministry, if you dig into like the meaning, the etymology of that word, it just means uh, to be minus. <laughs> like it comes from the same root as the word minus, um, less than. Like to take a posture of, mi of ministry is simply to go into the world and say, what can I do for you? Consider other people more important than yourself. Those are pretty basic principles of scripture, right? That's what it means. And I think when people get that sense from a person, they might, you know, be a little surprised because that is not the norm. And then when you speak about how you're trying to emulate Christ, that might become interesting, maybe, right? I, I, I seriously think Christian ministry is that simple. I mean, there can be big scale versions of it, but honestly, the small on the ground, everyday little enactments of that probably have the most effect in the long term. And like I said, again, with government, the reason I, I think we need to like look out for each other in this is because all living that way is new and foreign and difficult and unnatural. Um, 
and the role of the body of the church as it was with the body of priests in the Old Testament is to walk together, for, for us to balance out each other's strengths and weaknesses, and for us to bring one another back to the principles at the core of who we are. We will not do it well alone. We can't. To keep in step with the gospel of grace, we need to co-discern the motives of our hearts and guard our aim and witness. And seriously, I'll try to be the first to say it. If my motives are getting goofy, talk to me. Like, I want to know. I do. And all of this is framed um, just a little bit later in the book of 1 Peter as being for the sake of those who are watching. Um, 1 Peter 2.12, just a couple verses down. We'll examine this more closely in a few weeks. But it, it ends this section by saying this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is a big concern for Peter. Live this way so that when people inquire in and they look in, they'll, they'll see something appealing. So here's what should be compelling when our friends and neighbors look at our church. Last week we said, they should see costly love for one another. Um, at least down in the NACO services, one of the things I was trying to say is that love is extremely costly. Real love is extremely costly. The type of love that we are called to in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter is extremely costly because it requires that we lay down some of the most important things to us. Even the simplest acts of love require that we do not look out for ourselves primarily but somebody else that we might exhaust our tank that feels like it's always on empty, we might pour a little bit more out. That is very costly. But that's what we're called to because Jesus poured out every single drop. And now, adding to that, our work in our homes and our vocations is to be dedicated unto him. And then our words our sacrifice of praise are to be oriented toward acknowledgement of him and love for others. And we help one another in this because of our manifold weaknesses by governing one another out of love. I am not saying get a Christian t-shirt. I am not saying say praise the Lord a lot. I'm saying exhibit grace, emulate Christ, Fasten your eyes on what Christ has done for you. Contemplate it. Let it flow out to others. So that even when you speak of Jesus, it's like a praise exhibit in front of other people. I met a lady in Chicago when I was uh, there a couple weeks ago. Her name was Rashida, and she just started a coffee shop. She had an idea for a coffee shop. And, uh, and she she said that one of the most incredible things after she'd started the coffee shop and she'd try, they would pray, they tried to be like a, a presence of Christ in the neighborhood, but they didn't put any Christian slogans. They were in a neighborhood where there were churches everywhere and people were kind of like a little, you know, they were either into it or they weren't and they wanted to make a space where people would come whether they were into it or not. But she said one of the most surprising things that would happen because there were believers who would come there and they would pray and they would pray over what happened there is that they would hear people who would come into the coffee shop and have regular conversations start to say, you know what, I think I need to start thinking about God more in my life. Does anybody here know how to do that? And she was like, whoa, 
you know, how? And, and it was because the coffee shop was enacting the principles of grace. It was sharing. It was bringing people together. It was sacrificial. And they spoke of Christ sometimes because he was at the center of their lives and it became infectious except for those who hate it. Like the people who on January 6th threw a brick through the window wanting all black people to get out of politics. It can be an offense. The way of Jesus doesn't always get you friends, but it's a powerful, powerful force. And to those who want to be strong and in power, it may not fit, but we need to be willing to live in that space. Our ministry, our service to the world as Christians is to keep our house in order, pointing people to heart-transforming grace, and then we'll increasingly worship in our work and our words, which is why Christian worship centers on an embodied return of Jesus Christ, and we, in an embodied way, return to his sacrifice as we await his return. Um, every week we return to a great high priest who walked into the presence of God and laid himself down in absolute sacrificial love for us, and he had his blood shed and his body broken so that we might be brought near. He laid down his life to save sinners, and now we come and we eat of bread and wine, and we remember what has drawn us close. And then we're sent away from the table, and, and many of you will walk up here and you will receive the bread and the wine, and then you will walk away. And I want you to consider that you're sending. And what you do is when you go out into the world, into your workday tomorrow, into your evening tonight, you carry the gospel that has transformed your heart. And you carry that ministry out into the world. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Remember me every time that you eat of it. And he took the fruit of the vine, took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. He also said a really cool thing that he wasn't going to drink of that again until he drinks it anew with you and me. He plans to return, and there's going to be a party. And we're all invited, and it's going to be an outpouring of his absolute generosity. And so, as we hope for that, we partake in the body and blood that have brought us near. I'm going to pray at this time. There's going to be two minutes of silence. Um, and that two minutes of silence is just a time for you to reflect on these things. Um, for some of you, there may be something you need to come to Jesus with and, and say, look, I need to turn from this. This is keeping me from the way of Jesus. Um, for others of you, this may be all new and very confusing. And this would be an opportunity, if you're, if you're able to speak to God, to just say, what do I do with this? Um, maybe it's a time to say, look, um, God, I need this in my life. Whatever it is, you have two minutes of just silent space that we're creating for you, and you can emulate that in your, in your home, in your regular life. Um, after we do uh, take that time of silence, Corbin will come up and lead some more songs, and I'll be up here uh, handing out the, the Lord's Supper. And those of you, anyone who has even just a little bit of faith, um, if you can say, I want to put my trust in Jesus for this, I want to hope in this, then you can come forward and receive him um, by faith. After that, um, this table expands in our minds into dinner time, um, and that's just time for you to reflect and connect. 
Um, I'm gonna put some questions up on the screen. If you wanna go a little deeper in this conversation, you can talk about those with others, uh, but you're also welcome to just, um, you know, have fun and relax and play a game of pool in the side room. So let's pray and then um, we'll take that time of silence together. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be gathered in this space, um, but most of all, we are very, very thankful for your sacrificial love. Um, you as our cornerstone is a great challenge to us because we fall entirely short of your standard. But we're so grateful that your death for us has given us the status that you have, has given us hope. We're considered as good in, in the eyes of God as you are, which is astounding. And so we don't have to try to win anymore. We don't have to try to be better Christians. We don't have to try to be more righteous. We can just submit to your lordship and say, how do we live? Uh, how do we love? Have mercy on me. And so I pray as we take this time that you would give us hearts that are receptive to your grace. Um, steward your grace to us in the body and the blood. Steward your grace to us in the singing. Steward your grace to us in our communal, communal meal. Um, and help us to carry your grace into every place that we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Now guide us as we pray.